Hi and welcome to Terra.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation and many more. Today's guest is Harini Nagendra. She is a professor of sustainability at Azim Premji University. Harini is an ecologist who uses methods from the natural and social sciences. Satellite remote sensing, biodiversity studies, archival research, GIS, institutional analysis and community interviews to examine sustainability of forests and cities in the global south. She has also been a lead author of the 5th IPCC report, Working Group 3. She's a recipient of numerous awards for her research, has authored two books and over 150 peer-reviewed publications, including in Nature, Nature Sustainability and Science. I'm Kizi Manyan and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Harni. Welcome to the show. We're excited to have you with us. I'm going to get started by asking you this. From a BSc at Bangalore University to where you are currently, please tell us more about your career arc. Sure, I will. And thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. I know we've been trying to do this for a while, so it's very nice to finally be here. Let's start with where I am right now. So I teach at Azim Premji University and conduct research there on a variety of aspects related to sustainability. How did I get to where I am? It's sort of a, it's been a long and an odd journey, I'd say, with a lot of serendipity thrown in. So I did a BSc in microbiology, chemistry and zoology at St. Joseph's College in Bangalore, which is part of the Bangalore University system. The reason I took microbiology was also sort of I mean, path dependent, I'd say. So in my 10th grade, I did not have a good physics teacher. And the experience left me very scarred about physics and maths. I loved chemistry and I loved biology, but I didn't want to do physics and maths. And I didn't want to do medicine. So the option that that left me was microbiology. And in the Bangalore University system, you have to do three majors. So I took microbiology, chemistry, then zoology. And it's ironic because I do what I do today involves quite a bit of setting aside that bias of not knowing physics and maths, but I'll get back to that. So I finished this undergraduate degree in uh, in these subjects. And then I was trying to figure out what to do next for a master's. And I would say serendipity took a chance here because I applied to a number of postgraduate master's programs in molecular biology and microbiology and the biological sciences. And I got into multiple programs, but the one that I really wanted, which was what I got into, was the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore had just then launched an integrated PhD program in biological sciences. And that was very selective and I thought very difficult to get in. So I I wrote the exam not thinking I would get in. And then I got in through the interview and I did the interview not thinking I would get in, but I got in. And uh, they took three of us. They took six, but three didn't join for various reasons. So there were essentially a batch of three people doing an integrated PhD program, which is a master's plus PhD. And I would say that was sort of a real turning point for me because in the first two years of the integrated PhD, it was sort of the master section where you do more coursework. And I loved the coursework in microbiology, in molecular biology, in biochemistry, in digging apart the cell. But I also had to do an independent project and lab rotations. And I found I purely hated lab work on molecular biology. I mean, if we stay up till two and three in the morning and then get back to the lab at six. And then after three months of work, your culture wouldn't culture and you know something like that would happen. 
and I I just hated it. So I was at that point trying to figure out what to do. Okay, I love reading about this stuff, but I clearly hate doing this stuff. What do I do with myself? And at that point, the Indian Institute of Science in the biological sciences section had seven departments, of which six did some kind of molecular work: molecular biophysics, biochemistry, genetics, varieties of things, microbiology, biochemistry, and one department which was the Center for Ecological Sciences. And the Center for Ecological Sciences at that time, when I was trying to figure out what to do next, was having its 10-year anniversary. So I went to listen to the talk of W. D. Hamilton, who's a very famous geneticist, whose work I had read and was very interested in. But as my luck would have it, they were spilling over. Everyone was, you know, the talks were about an hour behind time, and I landed up listening to Professor Madhav Gadgil speaking. And you may know, of course, I mean, he's very well known in India and internationally. but he's a very well known ecologist who works in a very interdisciplinary realm looking at issues from economics to social sciences to ecology and what he said during his talk resonated with me a lot because part of the issue was i did not like working in the lab as i said part of the issue was working in a lab was extremely expensive you used molecular reagents that cost thousands of money i'm talking about 92 to 93 you know so 20000 rupees for a something that you use up in 3 days was very expensive then yeah right and i just felt we were wasting taxpayers money or rather i was wasting taxpayers money if if an experiment collapsed and so he talked about doing low cost research research that is relevant to the indian context research that involves going out and exploring and being limited only by your own creativity in finding new patterns and it just all of it completely resonated with me so then i went to him after that and i still had a second project of my masters to complete and i asked him if i could do the second project with him which i did and it was just a lovely experience i instead of quitting which was what i was thinking i might have to do 6 months before i landed up continuing for a phd with him so that's sort of the second serendipity point you know the question was what to do with a phd so he gave me a number of different textbooks to read and books of various kinds and he said pick what interests you and it turned out that the area that interested me was an area called landscape ecology if you look at a landscape and any area around you as far as your eye can see it can be a landscape what organizes what you see you know let's say you're looking at a farming landscape it's the choices of people to make or to subdivide agricultural pieces in a certain way maybe it's a family structure it's the ecology that tells them whether they should have rice or maize or ragi it's if it's a forest it's the water it's the sun it's the slope so what are the elements that structure a landscape partly it's social partly it's ecological and that structure is what gives rise to the species that live in those places so that was a really new field and i decided something about that sparked my interest uh, the good fortune and the bad luck of it there was no coursework in ecology that i could do because i had done my coursework So I came to this completely new, having a background in microbiology, molecular biology, and wanting to do ecology. And I wasn't a naturalist. I wasn't. Many people who had come to the Center for Ecological Sciences were people who had always been bird watching, doing a lot of treks, field trips. I didn't come to it with that. You know, it was a completely different path that brought me here. So I read voraciously. I read statistics because I, for landscape ecology, need a lot of statistics. I needed to map landscapes. and so i needed to learn remote sensing the indian remote sensing satellites had just launched a few years before that 
there was the computer system. Supercomputers had just come into the Indian Institute of Science. So there was a capacity to use computers to process a lot of this data. But nobody was really doing that too much in India for ecological purposes. So I had to learn everything new. There was a regional remote sensing center of the government of India in Bangalore. So I learned some techniques from them. But their software, their people were using. So I found a free software that somebody used. I had to learn, teach myself how to code because it was in uh, GRASS. It was a software called GRASS, which required C++. And I hadn't done any coding, so I had to learn how to code. Then we needed statistical software to analyze this. And we didn't have any software. So I had to, again, learn how to code software for statistical analysis. So everything was learning. And the nice thing was, though, that Professor Gardkill was very open to new kinds of learning. I think he came at it with the thought that you can pick up anything if you really want to. So I had to go back and uh, overcome my fear of physics and maths because to understand a few of the basics of why we did what we did, whether it was with the satellite data or with the other kinds of landscape data, you had to know the theory of why you did what you did if you didn't want to get wrong results. And so <laughs> that's when I realized that my teacher was the problem and it wasn't that I was a complete idiot who couldn't understand physics. <laughs> I love your background. and I love that you actually did everything from scratch and built up this fabulous thing. It sounds absolutely amazing. Can you tell us now about your current areas of interest? What kind of work are you doing? Sure. So I did my PhD on developing a method to look at remote sensing for biodiversity assessment in India looking at the Western Ghats forest. And it was a great experience. I learned a lot. But what I realized at the end was we can use all of these methods to map changes in biodiversity. But the reasons they're changing are all human-driven. So you need to understand the social elements of it if you have to do anything to conserve biodiversity. So at that time, I was uh, very fortunate to be able to work with Eleanor Ostrom for a postdoc in the US at Indiana University. Eleanor Ostrom was later the first woman to get the Economics Nobel Prize. And she's actually a political scientist. She passed away a few years ago, but had worked on how people and institutions shape changes in ecology or natural resource governance, whether it's irrigation or forest fisheries. And so I worked with her for several years at Indiana University and later when I came back to India. So I was at Indiana from 2000 to 2003, and then came back as an independent researcher for 10 years in India. I ran my own grants. I was on a couple of fellowships, Society in Science Fellowship, and then Department of Science and Technology Ramanujan Fellowship. So essentially working in different parts of Nepal, North India, Central India, South India, looking at forests with change and asking a very fundamental question. So we tend to always castigate people as the cause of change. You know, of degradation. People came in and the forest degraded. But there are also stories of people came in and the forest were protected. Or indigenous communities that live for a long time with forests, having sustainable use of these forests, right? So what my research was really looking at was, under what conditions are people drivers of forest degradation? And under what conditions are they protectors of forests? And there are social conditions, ecological conditions, economic conditions. So using this variety of data sets, from satellite images to interviews with people to biodiversity studies to geographical information systems, a number of different methods looking at this. So that essentially was what I did from 2003 to about 2013. Then in early 2014, I joined Azimpendi University. 
as a professor of sustainability. So they were starting a sustainability large focused program on sustainability. And I co-anchored that program along with another colleague. So we set up a set of courses in sustainability, which we taught. And around that time, or a little before, I'd say, around 2009-10, I also started moving away from my research on forests to start working on cities. And the reason was very simple. It started with a very personal motivation. I'm from Bangalore. And apart from a few years outside, I've lived in Bangalore most of my adult life. And I saw that ecologists tend to study faraway forests. And urban researchers tend to study cities as though ecology doesn't exist. But yet ecology shapes cities in a very fundamental way. Right? I mean, Calcutta is a particular kind of city because of the East Kolkata wetlands, because of the sea. Similarly, Chennai and Bombay. And Bangalore is Bangalore because of its lakes and its streetside trees. But nobody studied this or nobody had in 2006-07 when I started, not in a serious way. So I started with looking at what kinds of research on Bangalore would be useful for policymakers or for activists because there was a lot of agitation about tree felling, about lake degradation in those days. So I started with a very personal motivation. But what it has come to now is a very large-scale program where at the university we have a Center for Climate Change and Sustainability, which I anchor. And we look at cities across India as well as climate change and sustainability issues across India. So it really integrates the forest work, the cities work, and the, the broader backdrop of climate change, which is such a game changer for us. I mean, as we see with COVID-19, this is more of an example. It's not climate-related directly, but I think we are going to see crises of this kind increasingly since we're living in a world with climate change. So this is a large program that we put together of research on these different aspects that are important for India. Also teaching linked to the research and a lot of practice because we work with a lot of practice-based organizations. We run workshops and exhibitions. We write popular articles, do outreach, do training programs. So it's this large comprehensive program that we run now, which is really trying to link research with some action on the ground, whether it's through education or through public awareness or through practice. Right. And then in this context, my question to you is, do you think nature nurtures cities or is urbanization killing off the few green pockets that might exist? And can you give us a few examples of this? Again, the answer would be it's complicated like always. And there are places where definitely urbanization is killing off nature. I mean, we can see this. To me, the places where nature survives in cities, especially in Indian cities, happens when people take an interest in these places. So if you look at the way governments act, especially in cities, it's largely fueled by commercial interests, market interests and big vested interests. So if you have, for instance, a lake and the idea is, you know, should you put a road through the middle of this lake because it increases connectivity in the city? and can ease traffic. Definitely, there's going to be a large push from policymakers to say, just cut the lake in two and put the road through it because we want to ease up traffic. And a large part of that is the political economy because you get a lot of money from these road projects, right? And so it's really very hard for city governments, especially in the Indian context, so influenced as they are by corruption or by big projects or by influences from the outside, from the market, to save nature. However, if you look at the places where nature has been saved, you see that a lot of it is due to citizen movements, citizen awareness. So I think the RA, for instance, RA movements in Mumbai, of course, a lot of the trees in eventually in the RA were taken away for the metro, but it would have been much worse if there wasn't this systematic citizen agitation. 
Similarly, in Bangalore, there's a lovely road called the Nanda Road, which has trees on both sides, where the Bangalore Metro came in. And trees were cut, despite a lot of citizen agitation and civic uh, groups protesting. But the number of trees that were cut were far fewer than they would have been if there was in the citizen movement. Or South Delhi, where uh, the trees started being cut, but there was all this protest from people and the PIL, and now it's been halted for a while. So I think citizen groups and their involvement is what is holding these forests and preventing these patches of green from going away. But that said, having been on both sides, being on the activist side and as well as the research side, unfortunately, I feel like it's almost like you're on a treadmill. You save these trees for a while. Three years later, they're talking of a new project. Then you do something and you agitate and you save those trees for three more years and then something comes back. So essentially, they are wearing you down and people actually get fatigued and start dropping out of this entire effort. So right now, across Bangalore, I think on the periphery, they are going to cut something like twenty to 40,000 trees. Oh, good Lord. For a peripheral runga. Exactly, good Lord. And at some point, the times that you're weary or you're down or you're occupied with COVID or something else happens, that's when they try sneaking through these projects. It sounds like an endless cycle. You kind of do your bit as a citizen and saying, you know, I want some green in my city. And then your government says, okay, okay. And then we go back to the same status quo. It's quite sad, unfortunately. It is very sad. Look at climate change. It's hitting us. We know that in the next, by 2030, projections indicate that much of greater Mumbai, a lot of Chennai are going to be affected by floods. What should Mumbai be doing? Protecting up its, you know, its shoreline, replanting its mangroves. What is Mumbai doing? The Navi Mumbai airport is coming up. Does the city really need a second airport or does it need its mangrove forests at this point? The mangrove forests are the bulwark against climate change and flooding. And just pragmatically, if you're pouring money into a project, into an airport, which will come up in 2022 and by 2030, it's going to be flooded. Why are you doing this? What economic sense does it make also? It seems completely crazy to me. Or urban heat islands, we are saying that with climate change, cities will be maybe a degree and a half hotter. But because of cement and concrete, you get urban heat island effects. So Indian cities by 2050 or so will be somewhere between 7 to 10 degrees hotter than they are now. That's unlivable, right, for many cities. So what should you be doing? Planting trees now so that by the time you get to 2050, you have these trees. What are we doing? We're chopping trees. From a planning point of view, it makes no sense. I just don't get it. (laughs) I think it's like, a fight you have to keep on doing as concerned citizen in that sense it's a fight you have to keep on doing so you mentioned covid a couple of times i wanted to ask you what do you think about covid19 within the frames of climate change and sustainability globally or within the indian context it gives us a lot of lessons on what not to do i mean if you look at covid19 some of the issues were the wet market, but the broader issue, whether you think of Nepal or COVID-19 or the MERS virus, you know, many of these other viruses that have been popping up, Ebola, a lot of them are linked to land use change. So we are cutting down our last remaining forests and moving denser and denser communities of people into the forest areas. The distance between wild species and humans is decreasing. And so that is really a fertile place for new viruses to start crossing over. Today it was COVID-19, but tomorrow it might be something else. I mean, I think scientists have been warning for a very long time. The next pandemic is round the corner. So I think one thing we really need to do is try and figure out how can we create buffers around our dense populations, between our populations and the forests. 
I mean, just to give you an example again, Banarkatta National Park, which is right next to Bangalore, the government recently issued a notification, Karnataka government, that they're going to remove the buffer area around the forest. So every forest has a buffer to prevent people from coming too close. And now they're shrinking that buffer by 100 square kilometers, which means people come even closer to the park, which means you have more possibilities for dangerous encounters between people and wildlife for these virus crossovers. Right? So I think this is something we need to be thinking very differently about. We need to be saying we can't plan for business as usual when we go back. We have to somehow work from a health context and say how do we actually create these buffers and do some protection of our last remaining wild spaces. So that's one thing. The other thing I think we really need to think about as a society is do we need to move around so much? And you can see that the US, Italy, Spain, all the places that are hardest hit right now are the places that do so much international travel. And even in India, who brought it in? The, the people who do international travel. And I'm not pointing fingers of blame. I'm also a person who does international travel. But I'm just saying, and rethinking now seriously, how much travel do we need to do? How much can we actually do? I mean, you and I are sitting and having this conversation online, right? There's so much. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, was resisting it's very ironic. This is the group of scientists across the world who produces this report which guides the whole world on the climate change strategies. But having been an IPCC panel, they involve so much travel. We consume so much carbon while trying to combat climate change. And now for the first time, the IPCC meetings have moved to being virtual because they have to be. Right. So I think this has pushed a lot of us to reflect on our own footprints the scientific community is quite aware of this. But what about other things like uh, leisure travel, like cruises? I mean, we've now seen cruise ships carrying all of these viruses. Do we really need to go on these kinds of cruises? Do we need to travel so far for leisure? So there's an Austrian skiing town, which seems to be single-handedly responsible for hundreds of COVID cases. Because people from across Europe came to that skiing town to ski and went back. So you get a sense of what's vulnerable in our city systems. The fact that this globalization makes us very vulnerable to catastrophes. I think this is something we really need to think about. If we're in the area of climate change, we're going to have multiple such kinds of shocks. How do we make ourselves resilient? Partly, I think, by closing off what is unnecessary travel. Now, how do you mandate this? I don't know. Because what's necessary for you might be unnecessary for me, right? It's not something that can come in by fiat. But definitely, it's something that we need to think about very seriously after this crisis. My fear is two years from now, the crisis will weave its way out of society and we'll go back to business as usual. And that really would be foolish. I think as humans, we have very short attention span. It's become more and more evident, I feel, personally in our lives as well. Even how social media moves, how trends happen. Our attention spans have got really short. So as a society, we tend to forget and then when we are faced with a catastrophe, it kind of like shocks you into thinking, oh my God. Right. Moving away from COVID, my question to you is, how are forests protected in India? And do differences in monitoring by state and local institutions result in diverse social and ecological impacts? So forests are protected in India. Well, they were always protected by the Indian Forest Act and then the Wildlife Conservation Acts. And so that really meant that you have what you have now is government protected areas, which is a mix of tiger reserves. Then you have uh, 
national parks, you have wildlife conservation areas. So you have a number of different categories of forest protection, okay? Where essentially you have forest guards with guns who are patrolling the place. You have, in some cases, fences and walls that protect the forest. And then you have these other, uh, like I was talking about the buffer zone in the Banerkata Park. You have a buffer area around the park where certain kinds of development are not possible. You can't have a high-rise apartment just next to a national park. You know? So those kinds of restrictions are there. Can't have mining just outside the park. So that's been the predominant Indian government model of conservation. So though the laws are national, the states govern them differently because the forest officers are belong to different state cadres. And you definitely see differences. If you move from uh, Bandipur uh, National Park to Wainad across the border, and these are linked, you know, so uh, Tamil Nadu and in Karnataka, it's Mudumalai. And if you move to Tamil Nadu, it's Bandipur. These parks are all linked, but they're called different names because of different states. And you can clearly see, actually, it's very visible if you drive across the border, the differences in the kinds of condition of the park. And that gives you a sense of how states treat this differently. So there are roads through the park. Some states allow you to have traffic through the park at night, which is not great because a lot of wild animals die because of being killed by traffic at night. And some states close off the roads at night. So that's just one example. Some states pump in a lot of money into empowering these guards and some states don't and therefore there are these embattled guards without any arms facing armed poachers. You know? And so the guards are always at risk and they die. So there are different ways in which they handle this. But I think the big game changer has been the Forest Rights Act. So because of a lot of community agitation and organization across India, a lot of indigenous communities, a lot of tribal groups and other groups who live in forests were always chased out of the forest. So the Indian government approach to forests has been following a very British colonial model that the people in the park damage the park and you need to move all these villages outside the park. At the same time, you can have roads, you can have railways, you can have mines, you can have all kinds of other economic development and that is not supposed to impact the park. But a poor uh, tribal village which maybe has a few cows and harvests a few things for local consumption, a little bit of sale on the market, that is believed to be the big damaging factor. So all the resources of the government, all the attention goes into resettling villages. So this has been a problem. So local communities agitated for a long time to say that, look, we have been protecting our forests very successfully for generations on end. Give us forest rights where we can establish that we have been here for a long time. So the Forest Rights Act has two components. There's an individual forest rights component, which is just essentially giving you a patta over the land that you've been cultivating for a while. But the game changer for forest conservation is the Community Forest Rights Act, which is that if you're a community, you can apply for getting rights over a patch of forest and you can maintain it in certain ways which are allowed. So Maharashtra, there are some tribal communities, for instance, Gond communities, after they got forest rights, have started earning a lot of money and becoming very profitable because of sustainable harvest of bamboo. And they're plowing that money back into not anybody's pocket, but into community development. So they train their youth into how to do account systems and management, how to monitor the forest, how to collect GPS data on forest boundaries, how to look at the species, how to develop forest management plans. And then from community forest to community forest, you can provide training. You know, one group trains, the next group trains the next. This is just one example. There are a number of beautiful examples across India. And to me, this is a much better model of forest conservation. Not to say that we won't need protected areas. We do need, for instance, for a rhino or a tiger, you need very large spaces. So you do need some kind of community protected areas. But what you need to do is work with local communities, 
not treat them as enemies and try and throw them out. I love this example of the bones, actually. I mean, it's so empowering to be given rights, number one, and then you're able to make profit and you're able to putting that back into where you're coming from as well. That's an amazing example. Absolutely. So I worked for many years in Nepal and their community forestry program is known around the world. So one of the areas I was working in the Chitwan National Park, just outside the boundary, were these forest areas. So there were villages with agriculture and under community forestry, there was a UN program where they got funding to plant a lot of trees. So they converted their agriculture back into forest areas and got money from tourists who came in. And then I didn't go for about 10 years. There was the Maoist insurgency and then I started working on other areas. But I went back 10 years later and it was a, one of the best experiences I've had because you saw positive social change, positive community change and positive ecological change. So the trees were back just looking at you could not believe that there was agriculture here 15 years ago the people they had medical facilities they had better roads they had better infrastructure they had a library they had schools and uh, when you talk to them they definitely said their profits have gone up a lot of local youth were trained in uh, tourism so they could you know identify birds and take people on and there was so much wildlife much more wildlife there than there was in the park because these were much better maintained areas there's so much potential really to work in collaboration with communities. And I don't know why as a government, we tend to persist in treating them like enemies. So one part of your work is also related to satellite remote sensing technology, right? For biodiversity assessment, you mentioned. Can you tell us more about how this data is being used with maybe some examples? Sure. The thing is, you if you want to do something like biodiversity assessment at a country scale, it's physically impossible to go to every area. And if you wanted to go to every area, you would land up revisiting them maybe once in 10 years. right? But satellites, the good thing that they do, as you, I mean, you can see in any Google Earth image, for instance, is they give you a good aerial view of every part of the world. And they do this consistently. So most satellites, like the Landsat series of satellites is now free, and it does a coverage of every part of the world every three weeks. The Indian Remote Sensing Satellite Series is, well, it's not free, but it's available for us in India at relatively low cost. Also does this every few weeks, you know, with very good data that is available. So you have this long-term archive of data, which lets you see seasonal changes. It lets you go back from the mid-70s onwards, you get good data. So you can look at changes from the mid-70s to now. The thing you can do with satellite data, at least the kind that is readily available, is it's optical data which means you can see the trees on top but you can't see what's below the trees or whatever the top canopy is if you have trees you don't know what's below if you have uh, grasses you don't know what's below the grasses so whatever is the top surface that's what you see but if you do ground truthing if you go to the ground and say that in these kinds of forests so i'll give you an example let's say you go to the br hills the biligiri rangaswami Vetta, and that's the br hills wildlife sanctuary and you do a few transects there. So I had a PhD student who was working on this invasive species called Landana, which is a cross. So in a few different kinds of areas, you do field transects and you say, this is the proportion of Lantana here. This is the proportion of Lantana here. And this is the other kinds of biodiversity that I see in these places. You can then make statistical correlations with saying, this is the kind of satellite image that I have. Certain kinds of reflectance in, let's say it's this much red, this much green, this much blue, this much infrared. And that actually relates to these kinds of biodiversity in the ground. 
And this way, I can then extrapolate to other parts of the park. So I haven't been here, but I know because of my statistical relationships that there is likely to be lantana in these areas of the park. That's very powerful because what that does is it tells a park manager that if I have to eradicate lantana, I can go to all of these places and start doing this. Right? So those are the kinds of models you build for biodiversity. Similarly, if you're looking for fires and controlling forest fires is very important. You can do this very quickly through satellite images and quickly have an early warning system saying, here's a fire, go and stop the fire quickly before it spreads out of hand. There are a number of things like this you can do with satellite images for biodiversity assessment, but also for biodiversity management in a very important way. It sounds brilliant. It sounds really good. How is it being a National Geographic Explorer? Any learnings from that experience? And would you like to repeat it again? So the National Geographic has these very nice grants, two kinds of grants. There's a conservation grant, which is for people who want to do research that actually translates into conservation. And I had one of those for a two-year period. And they have a research exploration grant, which is to explore new areas for research, which also I have had. So I've got two of these grants. It's been a lovely experience because they're quite open to your defining the grant very in whatever ways you want. So one of the grants that I had the Conservation Trust Grant, I was also working with uh, and using that fund to support two PhD students, one who worked in North Bengal and one who worked in Assam. So we were looking at three sets of protected areas and trying to figure out what kinds of changes had they seen over time and what were the drivers of these changes. So different state governments, how have they been working in Manas, for instance, in uh, Baksakai, in Mahananda Wildlife Sanctuary. And a very, very nice experience working there. The second grant actually was very special to me, the research exploration grant, because that helped me start my Bangalore research. As I told you, the action work in 2006-07. But then I realized along the way that I would like to do some research on this as well, you know, not just the action part of it. So the National Geographic Trust grant was one of the early grants that I got that helped me kickstart a lot of the Bangalore-based research. We did some research on street trees, on trees in home gardens, on uh, lake conservation, and that entire process was very nice. You had uh, two books out now. One talks about Bengaluru and the other, which you co-ordered with Seema Mandoli, is about trees in Indian cities. Can you give us details on both? Sure. So Bangalore, the first book is called Nature in the City, Bengaluru in the Past, Present and Future. And really, when I started the Bangalore work in 2006, I wanted to write something eventually which would connect with audiences, popular audiences and a wider audience. About 10 years after the book, so this book came out in uh, 2016, I started writing this somewhere in 2014 to 15, saying, okay, I've got eight years then of the uh, research. How do I put this together for a wider audience? And so really that book is looking back at my research over, by the time it was published, 10 years of research trying to look at the ecological history of Bangalore. So I start with inscriptions, early inscriptions of settlers who moved into the landscape around Bangalore in the 5th and 6th century AD. Those inscriptions tell us about why they chose to stay in certain places, how they transformed the landscape, because the Bangalore is, is not a very hospitable landscape, if you look at it. It's, it's a semi-dry region. It doesn't get much rainfall. It survives because of its lakes, which harvest uh, rainfall but these lakes are actually man-made tanks and they were all created by early settlers who moved in to do rainwater harvesting. This is a very old and fascinating system. So I start with that, talk about the transformations when Kempegowda came in and built the modern city all the way to Tipu and Hyder and the British and then independent India 
and end then with a reflection of if you've seen centuries of change in this big time scale you know this big arc of history of the ecology but also the ways in which people interact with nature what does this mean for the future of bangalore there's a possibilities for a hopeful future rather than a dystopic future what would those possibilities of a hopeful future entail and it comes back to community action for me i think for me people are at the core and people not as individuals but people as collectives and so i talk a lot about then the collective movements across bangalore so that's really nature in the city bangalore in the past present and future when i wrote that book i mean my idea was to reach out to academics and non academics so i was writing it as a sort of semi crossover book scholarly but which could speak to people and looking back now i've been very honored in some sense by the reception because i find engineering college students are using it architecture students are using it regular members of the public are reading it i didn't expect that to this extent journalists have been reading it and passing it on to other journalists and i really didn't expect this kind of a reception on the book i expected that academics would read it and they have but this got me thinking that i mean people are hungry for books on nature and there needs to be other material out there which may be not based on personal research but something that is very accessible to people so in that process uh, seema mundoli my colleague co-author on the book has been a long term colleague of mine and we've written a lot of papers together and other newspaper articles etc so we started talking about the idea of doing a popular book then on trees of bangalore eventually we decided to do a book on trees of indian cities because we said why just bangalore there are people in other cities who are also interested you know do we then do a book on trees of bombay and so what are we going to do so we put together this book cities and canopies trees in indian cities and uh, penguin was very open to that so they've done a lovely job with getting for instance illustrations to accompany it which i think have the heart, spirit of the book but the idea with cities and canopies then was to be an all in out popular communication book which has the science we have a lot of deep science in the book but also has much more because i think we connect to trees in so many ways so we have games we have art we like to cook with the, i mean it's it's interesting if you look at a lot of popular writing on nature i realized later that there are very few women who have done this and so i think for me this is clearly a book written by two women because we have our recipes we have games we have things to do for kids all the things that we love to do in a very experiential way we have riddles and poems and stories about old folk tales all kinds of boxes with interesting information so we've tried to make this a three dimensional book about trees so you're not just learning the science but you're also feeling the tree cooking with the tree imagining how it would be to live in a world which was full of trees you know there all of this is elements that go in so that cities and canopies it came out last year and that's also again we've been very humbled by the reception and it seems like there's just so many people who who feel nostalgic about trees one of the things that struck us with our reception to cities and canopies is the number of kids who are reading it from let's say age 10 about and that was not an audience that we had in mind at all so that's been beautiful but what has been sad along the way is there are kids who are 12 and 14 who are saying yes in our lifetimes we can understand what you're saying because in our lifetimes we have seen these areas that were lovely and wooded and they are now barren and gone bereft of trees and you're thinking at 12 and 14 you should not have seen in your lifetime so far so much loss of vegetation so it's at the same time very alarming and you feel a sense of grief that they are feeling a sense of grief that they should not be at this age but it just gives us a sense that 
we need to do more. And I think to get people out there interested in saving their trees, they first need to get that spark of connection with them. So this is just one of the ways I think in which we thought of doing it with Cities and Canopies. So you plan to do any more kids' books based on the reception that you've got? Right. So we are working with Penguin and we are going to do a book on water in very similar ways. So water in cities, lakes, ponds, wells, trees, you know, water as infrastructure, water as goddess, the various aspects of water in a city and why we can't live without water. So that's one book we're working on. We're also thinking of varieties of other kinds of things. So maybe some popular book on climate change, some books for children, number of things in the pipeline. It all depends on finding the time for this in the middle of teaching and research and stuff at home. Absolutely. What do you think about the current climate change narrative? And do you think it needs to get more urgent? Is more urgent action needed? I think more urgent action is desperately needed. If you ask me, my personal feeling is on the science communication of the severity of climate change. We as scientists have dropped the ball because we didn't want to alarm people. There's always one component of saying people, the science community, which says we should provide them with the facts and let them draw their conclusions. But I think we have failed in not being able to connect to people and talk about the seriousness of the issue. Climate change is, I think we're very clear in the past year or two, if you look at the kinds of events around us, the Australian fires or East Africa's floods. It's very clear that climate change is not something that is coming to hit us in 2050 and 2100. It's hitting us now. And the effects are already quite severe. So, I I mean, I'm generally an optimist. It's very difficult. They say that ecology and conservation are what you call dismal disciplines. It's very difficult <laughs> to stay positive often when you teach about them or talk about them. But you have to be optimistic, I think. Otherwise, what do you do? You can't give up and go. Where do you go to? another planet, another space. It doesn't exist, right? So we need to be optimistic. But having said that, I'm very concerned about the state of the future world that we leave behind for our children. I mean, I have a 12-year-old and I'm thinking of her generation of kids and uh, I have uh, grand nephews about to turn a year. And I think of the world they're going to grow up into and it's, it's all very disconcerting. And I think we need to do something now. I think the entire Fridays for Future, Greta Thunberg, the kids' movement around the world, they're fighting for their futures because we're not fighting for them. And they know that the decisions we leave behind will be dead and gone, but it's going to impact them in the future. So I really think we need to be doing something now very urgently. And we're not. Like I said, I mean, just the example about Mumbai's Navi Mumbai airport on the very mangroves that will protect them from flooding. I mean, you can say far from not doing anything. We're actively destroying ourselves while we're on the way to climate change. And do you think in, in that sense, we need to have more informed climate activism? And this is my last question to you, by the way. So what call to action would you give as a community? What can we do to stop and say, okay, we need to reset and change our direction, so to speak? I think we need to push our governments to act because our elected representatives will only act when they feel like this is a serious electoral issue for them, right? If their constituencies are demanding it, they will act. And for that, I think you have excellent climate activists and they're very well informed. I've been talking to the Extinction Rebellion people and I know some of the Fire Days for Future people and many groups involved in climate action. Uh, there's a South Asia Federation across India. Extremely well informed, but I think the numbers are so small. 
and the majority of people are going through life and business as usual and so what you really need is mass education at a very large scale for people to understand the seriousness of this it's almost like it's something that okay the kids are doing it you don't want to break their hearts so you come with them for a protest or two but you, people don't really realize the way the kids do the urgency of the issue and uh, i think that is what you really need to get people out there realizing that the way for instance the stock market has tanked now because of covid i think our stock markets are going to become increasingly erratic over the next 5 10 years all our economies are going to be in danger our lives and livelihoods are going to be in danger unless we fix this climate issue so it's not a question of environmentalists are asking you to fix the climate and then this cost of fixing the climate is going to be huge but the cost of not fixing the climate is going to be unimaginable i think we need to get that message out and we are not able to do that as yet that should on that happening thank you very much for your insightful answers it's been a pleasure having you on our podcast sure i loved it and it was a very interesting conversation i'm going to be left with food for thought too so it was lovely thanks for calling me my pleasure my pleasure we have launched terra talks this is our attempt to bring the feel of climate change closer to home On June 30th we have Michael Lang who's senior green building planner city of Vancouver talking to us about zero carbon buildings. July 2nd we have Tim Falls narrating his experiences of how a 24-hour carbon audit created an employee-led movement. You can register for these talks on the homepage of our website www.terra.to.